In the London Times newspaper, I read a fascinating quote by climate activist and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, who said, every night the TV news is like a major ride through the book of Revelation. That was an amazing statement by a politician. And indeed, New York City resembled the angry red planet Mars when smoke from hundreds of wildfires wafted down from Canada, creating an eerie and unhealthy atmosphere. The air we breathe is increasingly a source of news headlines. And let's face it, this world is beginning to look like the apocalypse, but it's never going to be right until the Lord returns to set up his government. The Almighty seems to be taking his time in sending Jesus back, but the Bible explains that God is just being patient. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dar. My parents of blessed memory would be shocked if they were still alive to hear that, according to a recent survey of thousands of adults across all 50 American states, only 16% now attend church at least once a week. And speaking on an international news broadcast, a resident of San Francisco said that the once beautiful California city has become a drug-crazed hellhole, and living there is like a scene out of a zombie apocalypse. News commentator Michael Snyder wrote that, unfortunately, we're facing not just an economic collapse, but also social decay. He wrote that society is facing the collapse of everything because virtually every element of society is steadily breaking down right before our eyes. Looting is happening on an industrial scale all over America. And this theft is costing U.S. retailers over $100 billion a year. Violent crimes are increasingly being committed by biblically untaught, shockingly young children. If we're having this much difficulty keeping order now, what will the world look like once God's restraining hand is removed and the rapture suddenly happens? But meanwhile, the world is obsessed with climate change. Hollywood stars pose as experts. And one star recently pontificated that the world only has eight years left to fix the problem. Many other actors are making similar prognostications. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 7, that by God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. So if God has determined to renovate this earth by fire and create a new heaven and a new earth, politicians and climate control activists will not be able to preserve this planet a minute longer than God's timetable has already predetermined. The Bible says that by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. 
And don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. The apostle Peter wrote, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Here the apostle reminds us of this fact because people tend to think too much time has passed and God doesn't seem to be intervening. But remember, a thousand years is just one day as far as the Lord is concerned. Second Peter 3 verse 9 explains that the Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The New Testament teaches that the apocalypse will be staged by God himself. It won't just be a catastrophe initiated by man. Verse 10 follows that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The prophet Isaiah also foresaw the Almighty's divine fury in chapter 66. For behold, he wrote, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And so the church needs to get its priorities straight to save souls because the world itself is racing toward apocalyptic conditions described in the book of Revelation. Scenarios of freak weather, crashing asteroids, restrictions on freedom, famines, plagues, and a tyrannical new world economic order is coming. The creation of a system that enables government to control the finances of every person on earth has not been possible until now. However, this goal will be reached when government can control all buying and selling with the elimination of cash and a new monetary system. Even the technology to mark every human on earth with a digital passport and some sort of barcode under the guise of health care has never been feasible until now. To understand the depths of human depravity as well as the creeping consequences of the loss of freedoms, it's my conviction that everybody should read at least a couple of books about the Holocaust genocide that befell the Jewish people. When I reviewed a manuscript about a Holocaust survivor, I read references to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement prayer, concerning God's sovereignty. The prayer describes God reviewing the book of life and deciding the fate of every soul for the coming year, whether a person will live and in what manner they might die. The liturgy goes something like this. On Rosh Hashanah is written and on Yom Kippur it's sealed how many persons will pass on and how many will come to be. Who will live? Who will die? Who will see ripe old age? Who will not? Who will perish by fire and who by water? Who by sword and who by beast? Who by hunger and who by thirst? And so on and so forth. When he was a child, songwriter Leonard Cohen heard this prayer in synagogue and he later wrote a haunting song called who by fire, based upon that Yom Kippur prayer. Death certainly has to be faced, and churches should do more to help believers prepare for it, because it is the last enemy of existence. But as strange as it may sound, if you're not biblically literate, there's also a generation of believers who will never die, 
There's a biblical teaching in Christianity known as the rapture or the harpazo in the parlance of New Testament Greek, a word, as I've explained many times, related to the word harpoon. Indeed, an entire generation of believers will be, as it were, harpooned up, caught up to Jesus when he suddenly appears in the atmosphere to take to heaven those looking for him. So a revised version of the great Yom Kippur prayer could also read something like, God will decide who will live and who will die, who will perish by fire and who by water, who by sword and who by beast, literally the Antichrist beast, and even who by translation, i.e. the rapture, without dying. It's just a thought, but a powerful one in my book. So getting back to my text in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle added, since everything is going to be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? Accordingly, the apostle said, we ought to conduct ourselves in holiness, in godliness, as we anticipate the day of the Lord, when the heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Therefore, Peter said, beloved, as you anticipate these things, make every effort to be found at peace, spotless and blameless in the Lord's sight. Now, the apostles' question, what kind of people ought we to be, I believe is a reality check reminding us to be holy and godly when all around us our culture is decaying and demanding the very opposite. The travesty we have in so many of our nations now is a form of religion without holiness. Brazen sexual pride is being pushed day and night as if pride is a positive thing. Recently in Jerusalem, we were participating in the annual prayer breakfast at the time of the reunification of Israel's capital during the month of June. The streets were jammed due to the annual Pride March. That same agenda is also being taught in kindergartens and pushed everywhere in clothing, merchandise, paraphernalia, churches, food chains, coffee houses, and government buildings. By contrast, in the Book of Wisdom, in Proverbs 16, 18, we are instructed, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's just one of 33 sayings in Proverbs 16. And these verses remind the reader that wisdom and modesty are to be practiced instead of pride and wealth. After all, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Satan was once Lucifer, a beautiful angel created by God, but he defied God and fell from grace. Isaiah 14, 12 describes it, saying, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Satan's pride corrupted him and deceived him into lusting for even greater power and greater splendor, because he said in his heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. While in the poem, The Divine Comedy, 
Dante listed pride as the first among seven deadly sins. In fact, on almost every list, pride is considered the original and worst of the deadly sins. And it's certainly the sin most associated with Satan. Pride is the opposite of humility, putting one's own desires, urges, and whims before the welfare of others. Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, that pride is the anti-God state, the position in which the ego and self are directly opposed to God. And so it will certainly characterize the anti-Christ. So we must understand the times and ask God to grant us great discernment concerning pride and everything that's unfolding. And we must accept the harsh reality that with greater discernment, division will be inevitable. A person who seeks to be discerning must be willing to suffer the consequences of division and rejection. Because the gift of discernment will divide believers from unbelievers, and it will also divide discerning believers from less discerning believers. The gift of discernment separates the spiritually mature from the immature and the naive from the prudent. So even Jerusalem, God's city, the city of the great king, has made way for pride marches. As much as we love Jerusalem and are committed to her future, we're commanded in Psalm 122.6 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Nevertheless, Israel's capital city is described in Revelation 11.8 as Sodom and Egypt due to sexual immorality and spiritual corruption. In the future, during the Great Tribulation, God's two powerful witnesses will be martyred. Revelation 11.8 states, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, God's own city, is described as Sodom and Egypt because Sodom in the Bible represents sin and Egypt represents bondage. During the future tribulation period, which is already looming on the horizon, Jerusalem will be morally corrupt like Sodom and in temporary bondage like in Egypt to the Pharaoh Antichrist and his beast system, which will micromanage people's lives. According to Bible commentaries on this passage in Revelation 11, God's two big guns will most likely be Moses and Elijah sent back to earth as his witnesses, and they will encounter opposition. But Revelation 11.5 says their opponents will be consumed by flames. Additionally, the two witnesses will call down plagues and will have power to decree droughts and other disasters. All of these events will be signs and wonders of biblical proportions, while the two witnesses prophesy on God's behalf bringing the gospel message of repentance to the world. God will grant his two witnesses authority to prophesy, it says in Revelation, 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. But God also will allow these two spiritual giants to be martyred by the beast Antichrist. After all, didn't Jesus himself indict Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37 as the city that 
kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And so because of the people's contempt, the two witnesses will not be given a decent burial. God will supernaturally resurrect them in front of TV cameras. We interpret that according to Revelation 11.11, because after three and a half days, when their bodies were left like animal carcasses in the public square, the whole world will see them be resurrected. Revelation 11.9 says the world will gaze on their bodies and gloat, but they'll be fearful when the men of God are resurrected and ascend to heaven. And the street where they will lay dead is described as being in the great city. And some expositors identify that as Rome or Babylon. But that can't be correct because the context identifies the city definitely as Jerusalem. Revelation 11 and verses 1 and 2 refer to the temple, the altar, and the outer court. And Revelation 11, 8, of course, identifies and pinpoints the great city as being the place where our Lord was crucified. So there's no doubt that it was outside the walls of Jerusalem where Jesus died on a cross, not in Rome, not in Babylon. He died in Jerusalem. So the Apostle John, the scribe of the revelation of Jesus Christ, records here that the great city symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt because sin and spiritual slavery will best describe the spiritual state of Jerusalem at that moment in time. However, and hallelujah, Zechariah 12 and 13 prophesies of Jerusalem's repentance. And the concluding good news of the book of Revelation is found in chapters 19 to 22, where John saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So now in Revelation 19:11 we see the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, as he really is. No longer a meek and mild servant submitting to death to save the world, but now we see him returning in power, triumph, and great glory as the warrior king, the son of David. In this vision, the Lord is riding on a white horse. White is the color of war chargers, but it's also a symbol of purity. And the word white in this text is lukos, meaning absolutely dazzling bright, certainly not an earthly flat white as we know it, but a brilliant white like light. The Lord's eyes are described like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Accompanying him are the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, bright white and clean, following him also on those dazzling bright white horses. From the Lord's mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Also he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are we getting ready for this? The book of Revelation certainly predicts an awesome, stunning vision of great hope, the glorious return of King Messiah 
and the beast Antichrist will be vanquished by him, by Yeshua. So we must know Jesus as he truly is now, holy and righteous, the coming king. Recently, I saw this headline saying that in a shock survey conducted by George Barna, more than half of apostate Christians are deceiving themselves by not believing that Jesus lived a sinless life. But the same resurrected Jesus who never sinned and who went up into glory to sit at the right hand of God will come back on the clouds in like manner as he went up from the Mount of Olives. He ascended into heaven about 2,000 years ago or two days ago in God's sight. But now he will soon return to reign for he is worthy. The Lord's second coming will be different from the event called the catching away of the church described in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and John chapter 14. The New Testament says that the rapture, and I remind you that word in the New Testament Greek is harpazo, the Lord snatches his collected bride into the air to meet him in the clouds. But at the second coming, in Revelation chapter 19, he brings his bride with him to the earth. At the rapture, there is no judgment on the earth. But the Lord's second coming to Jerusalem brings judgment. The rapture takes his body, his bride up to heaven. But the second coming brings Jesus and his bride company back down to earth. While the rapture will be sudden and will have no preliminary signs, the second coming will be preceded by all the signs described in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 19. Concerning his glorious second coming, Jesus, Yeshua, prophesied in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory. So, my friend, if you're looking at the world and wondering, will all the perplexing problems ever be resolved? Will there ever be an end to war and crime? I'm here to report that this Bible says, yes, things are going to get better. And when King Jesus comes back to rule, I've been waiting for his return all my adult life. And this is what the Lord's prayer anticipates every time we pray, thy kingdom come. And our prayer will be answered soon. Jesus is coming. In the meantime, we have a lot of work to do for revival. His return will be the culmination, the apex of human history. Our culture somehow has acquired the mistaken impression that Jesus is just a soft touch who tolerates all our sins and just pats us lovingly on the head. But that's a lie. Genuine believers simply cannot live their lives any way they wish ignoring the Lord's instructions and think that they'll make it to heaven. That's simply not true. No, the Bible says we must follow the Lord and do what he says. Otherwise, he'll be our judge. This world is headed towards final judgment, and we must prepare ourselves to meet our God. Scripture forewarns that when the Lord returns, he will break up the existing global government at that time, as well as the corrupt apostate religious system that will be in place, making political and economic slaves out of the people. Concerning the Antichrist world dictator, Revelation 13, 16 predicts, he causes all, the small, the great, the rich, the poor, free and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand 
or their forehead. And he provides no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So if you don't cooperate with the beast and his system, you won't be able to survive without his number. People will not be able to function in society or do any business or medical transactions whatsoever. The best and most consistent Bible scholars that I know teach that nothing prophetically must happen before the Lord removes his believing church and then unleashes the horrors of the tribulation period prophesied in Revelation chapters 6 to 19. For that seven-year period, God will judge the earth with a fury, pouring out his vials of wrath. The world hasn't seen anything like it yet. Yes, in life, the Bible does say that we believers will have trials and tribulations, but we take comfort in the fact that the Lord has promised always to be with us in our trials. And he taught that genuine believers are to be kept from the great hour of trial, the great tribulation of God's wrath that will be sent to test earth dwellers. Listen to the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. God says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah in Jerusalem. What will he do when he brings the Jews back? And he's already done that. He says, I also will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered amongst the nations and divided up my land. The Almighty is angry for the partition of the land of Israel, saying, I'm coming to judge them for what they've done to my people Israel. And verse 17 of Joel 3 says, So then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy. Hallelujah and amen. Well, as we draw even closer to the Lord's return, it's my prayer that our sights and affections will be concentrated on things above and not merely on earthly matters. May we learn the dangers of being prideful. May we share the gospel while we're watching for and hastening the return of Yeshua. We are indeed waiting for God's Son from heaven to deliver us from the wrath to come. Please know that Jesus died for us so that we would have the Savior approved of by God. So call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation while there's yet time. And this Bible promises you shall be saved from eternal perdition. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share with me on social media. We also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our weekly email and watch all our videos 24-7. Don't forget also to download our free Jerusalem Channel app, which features our video library. And please subscribe to our Jerusalem Channel YouTube and my blogs at Substack. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg. Maranatha, 
and shalom. Here at the Jerusalem Channel, we work hard to keep you informed and up to date on prophetic end time events in the Holy Land. But we also see so many great humanitarian needs. And that's why your support is helping to keep this ministry lifting up the name of the Lord in the Middle East. One of our most recent projects was to donate and dedicate a fully equipped ambulance to Israel's National Volunteer Rescue Service. The ambulance is available to assist everyone, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and yes, even tourists who might need medical assistance. So thanks for being a part of the Jerusalem Channel by your gifts through our website or through our ministry addresses in the USA and the United Kingdom. Please help us to be a blessing to all the people of the Holy Land.